Stoneman, a poem. Let me hearken back for a moment, to a moment, when celestial songs played on the wind like mall music, holy vibraphones and blessed B3s following us from venue to venue. Hearken back to a moment when any incidental noise demanded a sacred definition. Hark, the angels sing. Songbird notes cutting a melody out of ceaseless motoring along city streets, doubtless an echo of the divine, as were wind chimes and the children's laughter from two yards over and church bells, naturally. To the most common cacophony, we would ascribe great magnitude, as though all of it, the rustle and swish, the thump and creak, were coded intelligence. Let those with ears to hear. Old sounds and old words have no frequency in the sonosphere of a world where the loudest sounds are the rip of a bullet and the lament of a veloma and the lambasting of PR people intent on stripping meaning from the cries of those left behind. And maybe they are right to do so. What supernatural messages are there to be heard in anguish? What truth does chaos bring? What parable is in the explosion and the bang, the confusion and the cries? Can we hear God in the splatter and the thud, the scramble and the drop? Let those with ears to hear. Hearken back for a moment to a moment when voices now silent once spoke. The good mornings and farewells, the I love yous, the thanks they offered, the dreams they declared, the fears they whispered, the arguments they made, the space they filled. Hark, the silence rings, Worse, the claptrap musings of PR people who hear God in chambers and rounds. The ones whose Jesus bears arms exit their echo chamber, rank and file, singing the praises they hear in the sounds of terror, spreading the message they make out in between bullets. Let those with ears to hear. I will hearken unto the songbirds and silence, the sounds that are and the ones that aren't. I will listen, but the message, if it is there, if it depends so deeply on my ears to understand it, can find me. I've no ears to hear, only a mouth to speak. another episode it's been a minute um since our last one but that's kind of the new the new format of things i think um so on the last episode i kind of um put out the idea of doing fewer episodes uh once every two weeks instead of every week which helps me out in terms of the time investment and the editing and everything else since this is very much um not my full-time job <laughs> um uh, it's it's one of uh, a couple side gigs actually that I I have and I love it, um, but um, it takes a lot of time to kind of whittle conversations down to an hour and uh, put them together the way I want. So 
Um, so yeah, I asked I asked you guys to weigh in, and a few of you did, uh, and everybody kind of came back and said, I think with the exception of like one vote on an Instagram poll, <laughs> um, everybody said, yeah, that sounds great. Let's do. Uh, an episode every other week, and then uh, just have them be a little bit longer. Um, Two-hour conversations that really get to the meat of the thing. And I think that's going to be good. I, I, I think, as you're going to see in today's episode, it really helps to be able to spend more time uh, with one person. Um, so, yeah. So, today, today's episode uh, is so good. I'm so excited for you to hear it. I'm sitting down with, um, his name is James. Um, we're, we're keeping his uh, last name anonymous uh, because a lot of what we talk about, um, he, he, he still hasn't you know, uh, had some of those conversations with other people close to him in his life. So uh, we're respecting that and, and asking uh, if, if you do happen to know this James, don't forward this conversation to you know, his family and close friends. All right, just be cool. Uh, um, but James is awesome. He is a, uh, he's a PhD student. He's a music theorist and teacher. Um, he's incredibly, exceptionally bright. And um, he's an Enneagram 5, if that uh, tells you anything. You, you know what kind of um, uh, really cool insight and, and thoughtful, um, thoughtful work he's done. So he kicks off this conversation by reading the opening paragraph to a piece that he wrote a while ago. Um, it's a, uh, it, it, well, I'll just, it, we, he explains it a little bit in the conversation, but I just want to let you know that that's, that's right off the bat. He's reading a piece that he wrote um, a little over a year ago, I believe. And I asked him to do that. Uh, he sent me this piece, um, and it's just a really great uh, overview of his story of kind of losing faith and, and what, what came after. Um, that piece is actually available on uh, heathenpodcast.com. You can read it in full if you like. I asked for his permission to do that, and he graciously gave it. So uh, if, you, if you're interested in reading his full, um, it, it's, it's called My New Testament, and it's his uh, kind of written in the style of, a, of uh, the Bible, um, his story of apostasy, essentially. So that is out there on the website. The link is in the show notes, or you can just go to heathenpodcast.com and click on the blog. You'll see it there. Um, yeah, I think... Oh, one more thing, one more thing. Uh, as I said, James is a musician, uh, so he also graciously uh, provided a lot of the music that kind of... Um, does you know provides the transitions between some of the conversation points and that kind of stuff so most of the music that you hear in this episode is going to be his um and it's just really beautiful basically anything that sounds like really technically proficient and gorgeous on the piano that's all him um I cannot play that well at all so uh hey heathens thank you for listening enjoy this excellent really great conversation. I had like one, I had a lot of takeaways, but there was one in particular that, I mean, you'll hear it. I, I kind of have my moment with it when, when he says it, but it's so good talking about Jesus as an archetype and man, some really helpful stuff here. So enjoy.
spiritual conversations for the godless. I'm Matthew Blake. Welcome to Heathen. The Vacant Testament. The most difficult part about losing faith isn't confessing the unbelief that tears families apart, nor the desperate attempts of once best friends to preach away the doubt as they inch ever farther away for fear of contracting the disease, nor even the moment I was struck by the inevitably and likely finality of death. Families can heal, new friendships can form, existence can be embraced. Rather, for me, the most difficult part was reconciling a lifetime of experiencing God, the countless hours spent praying for myself, for others, and expressing daily gratitude simply for life to this omnibenevolent phantom. The years invested in conversational relationship with this divine other, and the straining to hear his voice that was just loud enough to decipher, the secrets I confided to this ever-present listener, and the feeling of being truly understood. The timeless wisdom received from this omniscient father who had plans to prosper me, and the love and peace that surpasses all understanding, now only surpassed by the profound vacancy of my own gaze staring back at me from the place where God used to be. The garden where he would walk with me and he would talk with me was now a hollow echo echo chamber. His still small voice now transposed into my own whimper. A pathetic sound which now mocks at the, as the raw testament to a life spent praying to, worshipping, and deceiving myself. <laughs> it's more dramatic than I remember it being. <laughs> <laughs> it always is, isn't it? Like when you... Yeah go back in time and, and revisit those just moments. Picture myself just sitting in a dark room, just brooding on my laptop. Whiskey, <laughs> whiskey on the corner of the desk. Very possible. Oh, man. <laughs> I love it. Well, let's hear a little bit then. Uh, I, you get to, like, introduce yourself. Okay. Uh, because I don't know you. Uh, mm-hmm. we've, we had one slightly... I was only slightly inebriated, I think, <laughs> when, we, when we met a uh, conversation at a... Beer and hymns, a beer and hymns event. Yeah, beer and hymns. Sing, yeah, singing Christmas songs uh, in December, and uh, yeah, we met in line mm-hmm. in the beer line. I think. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you were the keyboard player. I was playing some keyboard that night. Yeah, probably not very good, but <laughs> no, you had those chords totally handled. Yeah. yeah, just just that. That's all. Just the chords. <laughs> that's all I can do. But um, yeah, then it turned out we have a mutual friend, Damien, who's been on the podcast. Oh, as really? Well. Yeah, yeah, he did. A, he's like early on, episode four or something. Mm-hmm. Maybe not that early. Anyway, um, and he was like, hey, have you met James? You should talk to him about your podcast. And so here we are a couple months later. We had to reschedule a few times. but Yeah, here I am. The story so, hasn't really changed, so that's, that's good. That's good, yeah. Nothing dramatic has happened since December, whatever, 20th. Uh, no, not really. Right on. Not, not the changes, these aspects of my story. I mean, I think my life is, by and large, on the up and up. Mm. And I think that does tie into where it started, which is where I read from that, uh, that account where yeah. I was feeling, I wrote that about a year and a half ago. Oh, wow. That's still pretty. Yeah. Not too long ago. Pretty raw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I, I did. I was. I was, was going to ask when that that piece yeah. came to be because. Mm-hmm. So I'll. How about I'll tell you where that piece came from. Yeah. And then I'll. Go back. Flashback into where it came from. Yeah, yeah. I'd <laughs> love to the story of that. I'd love to hear like yeah, your so upbringing and all that. Good what stuff. I just read was a paragraph. Let me turn my phone off. What I just read was a. The opening paragraph to about a. Five-page document um, where I... Seven pages. Seven, actually, yeah, yeah. yeah, sometimes... <laughs> yeah, I don't know when to stop. Grad school will do that to you. Um, it was a seven-page document um, outlining my tra- transition through the stages of grief following what I would call my um, transition out of belief. Mm. And moving from anger and denial all the way through to acceptance. And I think I've been continuing on as a healed person in a way, Mm. which gives so many benefits um, that wouldn't have occurred had uh, those stages of grief not been worked through to completion. Yeah. It was that format was inspired by a post on Reddit. There's a Reddit subreddit called X Christian. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know if you've had a chance to take a look yet. You know, I uh, I quit Reddit prior to really getting super interested in having these conversations. Oh, really? Yeah. Reddit was not good for me. <laughs> it's a time suck. You know, it's a time mm-hmm. vortex and you can just lose hours going through. Oh, yeah. You can spend your virtual life there. It's insane. Yeah. And what I, I, for me, I found it to be actually... Like, it really catered to some of my more unhealthy mm-hmm. um, inclinations. I I mean, yeah, I don't, there's part of me that's just really drawn to the, the dark and disturbed and, um, you know, mm-hmm. just, like, videos of, like, people being harmed, mm-hmm. like, became a little bit of a, yeah, it was just, like, there's just a lot of that on there, and I would get sucked into yeah. it, and not not for the better. I like, I didn't process it well. So mm-hmm. I actually put like a blocker on, on my that's, browser so that I wouldn't go to it. That's uh, great self-discipline. Yeah. Good, good on you. It took, uh, I mean, this is after like three years. <laughs> like, so well, it could have it took a while. quickly turned into 30. No. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's true. Uh, it's, it's amazing how we have these natural ways of controlling our vices mm-hmm. in, in daily life that if given, uh, excessive resources to follow them through, our vices would undo us just like that. Yeah. And access to communities exploring any topic under the sun with complete anonymity, mm. I think is one of those resources that can undo us. Yeah. It's like those who win the lottery and um, are worse off very quickly. Almost, um, it's like they know. were addicted to cocaine. The only thing keeping them from from completely being undone by it is they had couldn't pay, afford, couldn't afford for it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so good for you. And, um, <laughs> but it's not always a bad place, right? So yeah. you, you found some community Well, funny there. that you say that, because there were some positive and negative at- aspects of this ex-Christian Reddit page. Yeah. And uh, at its best, it was a place for mostly young men, it seemed, mm-hmm. to express, um, to bond over mutual experiences in how terrible being raised in an evangelical home was and how repressed they were sexually and how they've come, they feel like they've come out of the closet in a profound way in their lives. Um, and this is great stuff. We find people who've 
who share your sufferings, it helps you. Yeah. You give a chance to tell your story to a receptive audience. It's healing. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the downside, I think it became a place of festering vitriol against religion and faith and families who, in large part, it seemed had, had their best intentions, at least, in raising, in raising them with uh, religion or with under the evangelical church. Yeah. And I think this vitriol could quickly turn into just uh, a contagious resentment about their past. Yeah. And that does not promote healing. Um, it, it actually promotes the picking of scabs that turn into scars that become self-defining. And pretty quickly you become, you see yourself as an ex-Christian, not what you become, but it's what you've walked away from with increasing anger and hatred and resentment. Yeah, defining yourself by what you're not or, yeah. or what you're no longer. Yeah. yeah. So I, I frustrated a lot by that Reddit page. But there was one post that asked very productively, let's gather some of our stories, put them in the format of a Bible, and we'll each have our own chapter, mm. and we'll just see where it goes. Hmm. So I, I responded and... To my knowledge, nobody else responded. I never even heard back from the original post uh, about what I'd written. So I just kind of let it go into the cyberspace and nothing happened until (laughs) I just sent it to you. I think you're the only other person who's ever read it. So (laughs) That's probably not true. Somebody's read it on Reddit on Reddit, but... um... It's a scary part. You never know. Yeah, exactly. Wow. That's really... Because the potential for that is actually really cool, like to have a collection of, of... Very human stories. Yeah, well, it's more in less... the vein of the Bible, which is a collection of very human stories. <laughs> yeah, but who really enjoyed watch reading the Bible just <laughs> as a Bible anyway? Like, oh yeah, no, no. Whoever says like, oh, the chapter layout was so exciting. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, I think that's why, why maybe why let's model ours after something. <laughs> so I think else. what you're doing is, hmm. is a much more interesting and Engaging. relevant way of accomplishing the same task. Yeah, because it's. I mean, this is what we do, right? This is. This is a very human thing. Like we we gather around and and yeah. pour our hearts out to each other and yeah. Well, some better than others. Mm-hmm. I, I actually may be more comfortable writing than I am. <laughs> oh, I feel uh, you. Yeah. Pouring my heart out in person, yeah. but yeah, it mm-hmm. should be what we are. Yeah, I think it is most healing that way. Yeah. For sure. Uh, it, there's a huge learning curve to this for me too. Like I'm, I, I I like to write as well, and that I feel much safer because there's the time to prepare, mm-hmm. to finesse, to really like say what you want to say and ultimately probably over explain mm-hmm. so that you really are understood. Uh, but I don't know. There's something I found that like something about this where it's just like on the cuff, it's like on the record <laughs> in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah. I, it, it's, it's, a. Uh, have had some really profound like moments and realizations through the course of, you know, I think I told you just like 12 episodes now. Mm. or so um but some things that i already know i'm going to carry with me for a very long time um that are going to help me get me through so and that's where i was transformed by my by my writing even if i was trying to communicate it to somebody else i was changed by it mm. and yep. here you are producing this yeah. and you've been changed by it yeah and we hope that others will be too and no doubt some have but yeah. uh really it's a it's technology of the self yeah. to to help yeah, help us along. Absolutely. Um, so where I, I came from... Yeah, let's hear this. Uh, I was raised in a really loving um, evangelical home. My mom was... Uh, was part of the Jesus movement as a teenager 
and was really caught up in the the hype of of what G, the Jesus could do for you in the the late hippie movement. Yeah. And my dad was raised Catholic, went to Vietnam, um, had lot completely lost faith in what he because of what he'd seen in large yeah. part. Came back and uh, rediscovered faith through the evangelical church, was a com- which was complete um, opposite to his experience of Catholicism. Mm-hmm. And they had a family based on this faith, which they believed was the answer to a, to every life question. Mm. And I remember nothing but, in the context of faith, nothing but positive experiences growing up. Mm. Um, some highlights would be my dad coming home after work, and we, I was maybe about eight years old, and he would, we would together read through the book of Proverbs, um, maybe just two verses at a time, um, and we'd just talk about what it meant, if it had relevance to us now, or if it didn't have relevance to us now, how funny things were back then, how strange that things could be so, th- so old and still be so applicable um, to work or to school, to yeah. life in general. Yeah. And so in this way, I think a large part of what I received in my evangelical upbringing was incredibly positive. Um, but as I grew older and grew more skeptical uh, through high school, I realized that my parents didn't have a lot of answers to my what seemed to me to be most obvious questions. Mm. And I remember writing a paper in high school. It's my senior capstone for the International Baccalaureate Program. I wrote it comparing the lives of two, two men. Uh, one was Charles Templeton, who was a partner to Billy Graham mm-hmm. in the beginning of their ministry. Okay. And Billy Graham was a famous evangelist, probably the most famous uh, Christian evangelist yeah. of the 20th century. Uh, so Charles Templeton and Billy Graham started Youth for Christ, and they're both on fire for God. Neither of them really educated theologically. So Charles Templeton went to Harvard Divinity School, while Billy Graham continued to evangelize. And very quickly, Charles Templeton realized that he felt he made a big mistake and quickly denounced his faith and became agnostic huh. and uh, died a few years ago of Alzheimer's um, disease. Wow. Um, that was one of the reasons he had to re- d- recount his faith is because he didn't believe anybody. It was a problem of evil. He didn't know how anybody could suffer so much with a loving God mm-hmm. uh, if, if God was real. Um, Charles Templeton's story was made famous in The Case for Christ, which was a famous Lee Strobel book in the yeah. early 2000s. Um, for any Christian audiences out there. Yeah. Um, and yeah, people will definitely have read that. Um, some other folks have already have mentioned it okay, on the podcast yeah. too. I read it like in high school, but I don't, I don't remember any of it. So I compared Charles Templeton to, I think his name is William Murray. And he was the son of the founder of the American Atheist Association. Hmm. I'm not sure how I found out about this guy on, on the internet back in the early 2000s. Hmm. It was still in its early uh, <laughs> development. So William Murray was raised militantly anti-religion, specifically anti-Christianity. And long story short, around age 30, he found himself, I think, drunk in a gutter somewhere, stumbling into a church, realized it offered everything that he had, that his life was lacking, and became a Christian evangelist pretty quickly, a pastor and evangelist. So you have these interesting uh, contrasting trajectories of those yeah. who thought they had the truth 
found themselves desperate for something else and took opposite, adopted opposite narratives, but found all the truth they needed in that. Yeah. Um, I just found, I was so stimulated by that idea. My parents didn't know what to do with it. They couldn't begin to speak to the complexity of these issues. Right. My high school teacher didn't really know what to do with it either. <laughs> uh, he was quite atheist and outspoken about it, but supportive. Uh, so going to college, I had two options. I could accept a very generous offer to go to a, a, one of my top universities uh, study engineering, or I could go to a Christian school and study theology. Mm. And I, after having an internship at NASA up in the um, Dryden Flight Research Center in Edwards, Edwards Air Force Base, I decided engineering was not as important to me as finding the truth. And I thought, if the truth was something that was real, then it was worth pursuing with everything I had. Mm. And so I chose going to Azusa Pacific University and majoring in theology and then, again, double majoring in music. Wow. And I really owe it to the theology program there for opening my eyes to everything that uh, standard American evangelicalism um, could not offer. The, some of my favorite theology teachers at APU highlighted uh, the complexities of belief and how little could be known, hmm. um, but how the pursuit was worth the pursuit, not for answers, but um, because there, in many ways it's difficult to conceive of a higher calling than hmm. finding out where the abyss of our knowledge is and then carefully trying to excavate whatever you could. Yeah. Huh, how interesting. But it was also enough to make me drop my theology major. Because <laughs> I realized I could do that on my own time yeah. <laughs> and not spend all this money uh, at university. And since then, I think over the next five years, my faith slowly eroded away until I came to a place, my 25th birthday, I went up by myself. We were just talking about birthdays. Yep. Um, so contrary to the one you were mentioning, uh, <laughs> I went up by myself on a hike on top of a mountain and uttered the words out loud. And I think there's something powerful about articulation when something becomes more real to us. I articulated, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. Yeah. And I didn't know exactly what I meant. I think the, since then, in the last six years, seven years, I've been unpacking just that statement and re-understanding it anew almost every, every day. Mm. Um, so now when I have to identify myself and my beliefs, I call myself a proactive agnostic. All right. <laughs> you want to unpack that a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> oh, sure. Uh, agnostic because uh, I, I don't think the truth will ever be known. I think uh, we'll, we are pursuing it and we find meaning in its pursuit mm-hmm. and its being ever beyond us. Um, but proactive because I'm not just resigned to, our, to a not knowing I I want to always see myself as pursuing um, whatever next level of, of it's like it's like a resolution of a screen like you can always get a sharper image you yeah. can always get uh, um, a clearer view of how my me as an individual and the truth a truth that's out there can can become better acquainted mm-hmm. so. mm, I love that so the impulse to 
that you really, it sounds like you really followed through, through on, um, as early as high school to ask the, the questions that don't have the pat answers. Um, the problem of evil, the looking at the trajectory of two men who ended up on, mm-hmm. you know, completely opposite, uh, the completely, you know, yeah. Opposite space from where they had started. Um, it doesn't sound like that ever like got tempered or quieted in you. Cause pretty, or, I mean, as you know, in college, you're already like going through mm-hmm. your, your, your process of unbelieving. And so I'm, I'm, I'm just finding that really interesting because in my experience, I had the same kinds of questions come up. Um, I mean, just like everything from I, I, in, a, in a recent episode, I actually wrote out the story of this question I asked um, the man who I call the best preacher I knew. And he was the guy, he was an itinerant preacher who would come through our town every now and then. And he was the one that nobody missed Sunday when he was the speaker. Um, mm-hmm. We all loved him. And we got, as a, as a youth group, we got a chance to spend time with him one-on-one and, and he just wanted us to like pose the questions and create the conversation we wanted to have. So nobody else asked any questions. And I raised my hand and I'm like, <laughs> can you explain to me more about how, <laughs> uh, you know, just basically the mechanics of penal substitutionary atonement? Like how does, <laughs> um, Christ's, uh, presence in hell, presumably for three days and, nights how does that um you know suffice for mm-hmm. a uh you know generations and generations of you know, of humans who if i were to pay for my if i were to have to pay for my sins i have to do it forever like it's an eternal punishment i don't get like there's no like moment when it's done i don't three days in i'm not like okay you're done like so how did that like you know that was my question and and i just remember like a deeply unsatisfying response mm-hmm. <laughs> you know from mm-hmm. the man who like was supposed yeah. to be the be all end all in our in our world in our community. Mm-hmm. So like I I learned to like stop asking those questions for a long time. Yeah, because um, our idols, our human idols, would um, model that it was not important. Mm-hmm. The details aren't important, and so we were caught yeah. in the middle. Like I have these questions, and uh, I have these people who I admire, and they don't really seem to mix very well. And what should I do? And I think one of the most ancient ways of, of finding our path, older than the Bible, um, mythologically speaking, is the, is the hero mythology, right? Mm-hmm. That uh, is the same dilemma. We have what we're handed by our culture, by those who lead us, and we have our own journey that beckons us forward through the form of questions in this case. And we have to just choose, do we stay or do we go? And I think the myth, what the hidden mythology tells us, even its manifestation in the Bible, tells us to go, go out yeah. into the wilderness to be back and forth by the questions. And that's where I'm, I've actually, after my admission that I didn't believe in God, I was still teaching at a Christian university. Yeah. And that's problematic because you have to sign a belief statement. Were you teaching theology? No, <laughs> I was teaching music. Music, okay. Yeah, so you could say, not, yeah. <laughs> but, but still, still, there's this ethical rub. Like, of course, I, I, can I honestly sign this document? So I was talking to some philosophy professors at, at this Christian university about what I should do, and uh, I got the same response from a number of them. They said, "Well, what you're actually doing is what I consider to be the most Christian thing to do." 
And so I got nothing but thumbs up all around that I was following this, what they would say, a Christ-like path. Yeah. Even in denouncing a belief in Christ. Hmm. And so I think in the last five years, I've come more to appreciate the type of truth that I received growing up um, in, a, in a different way. I believe it now in a different way. Yeah. <laughs> it's not true in the scientific sense, but right. it is true in a, in a metaphorical sense. You know, I, I had a, I, th- I have a lot of anxiety when I look back at it retroactively because I could, I can so easily see myself and my personality, um, going the way of my, my family patriarchs, my grandfather, my dad, um, who are all still very much towing a line and, and you know, as I see it, um, uh, to, to hold their understanding of the world together you know, they're just very, very deeply committed to this particular myth, if we're going to use that, that mm-hmm. kind of uh, terminology, um, the Christian myth. And I just, I, I wonder sometimes for me if I had, because for me it was my queerness is what, you know, di- ultimately would not allow me to, I, I, I couldn't live the two, the, mm-hmm. those two lives. So I wonder if I hadn't, if I had grown, if I weren't queer, if I would have, I feel pretty confident I would just be like right on track with some of my cousins and my grandfather and my dad and just like kind of hmm. still part of it. So sometimes I, I, you know, I do look at that and say like, that's my, that was my saving grace. <laughs> like mm-hmm. that is what saved me. Um, uh, cause otherwise you just don't encounter in that, in the, in the world I grew up in, you just don't encounter enough otherness, uh, to, mm-hmm. to wake you up. Um, mm-hmm. and you can, if you're not careful, you do become bound by the fears the, mm. that you acknowledge, right? Mm-hmm. And it's the fears that build the walls that keep chaos at bay. Yeah. And I guess that's one reason I chose this T-shirt to wear. Star Wars. It's a Star Wars yin-yang, right? Oh, I didn't even see that. That's <laughs> awesome. Oh, yeah, look at that. Which, uh, of course... The light in the and, dark, the and, death and, star in the... In Taoism, you have chaos and order, and I think we have evolved to to navigate this, the perfect place between the two. Hmm. And we become afraid of things that are too chaotic for us to handle. Yep. But we get bored, thing, bored of things that are just too orderly. Right. And we just, we love the, the middle part. Yeah. The middle part. Um, and so I guess you were saying that your queerness was just too chaotic for the yeah. culture that raised you to yeah. handle. And that was what called you forward, mm-hmm. called you out into... To explore what they call chaos, but what could be, what you found order in and yeah, acceptance. Absolutely. So, what was it for you? Like, what was that? Was it just your mind? I just feel like you just have a mind that's not going to be satisfied with some of those uh, like placating mm-hmm. <laughs> responses from. Although you didn't have those same kind of responses, I you was, had people who encouraged you on this path. So. I, I was always one of those kids who asked questions excessively. Yeah. <laughs> and there are home movies of me just like, why? Why? <laughs> no, but, but why? And so it could be just this really deep curiosity. And back in the days when I was on dating profiles, I would 
always, my first line is like, I'm just an insatiably curious person. I'll mm-hmm. just keep bugging you with questions because <laughs> um, that's what fascinates me. So it could be a, a, a drive just to better understand things. Um, but there were some exp- a couple experiences too. Uh, after college, I was a keyboardist in a Christian band that toured around a bit with, with a preacher. Mm-hmm. We mostly do summer camps and Bible schools and that, we also did like public schools once in a while mm. with like character education. Mm, like, yeah. So the same guy who was a pastor wrote a, a general book on character development for uh, for elementary school kids. Interesting. So he'd bring that message and like he'd preach the same thing, but without any Christian language. Yeah. But what I saw over my time with the band were the tactics that this evangelist used, and he even told me one time he said. You have to make them feel guilty mm. as early as possible, mm. and then they'll need God. And that didn't jive well with me. Yeah. Uh, that seemed to be the epitome of manipulation of an innocent person. I mean, that was just evil yeah. to me. Even if it was justified by a desire to do good, I think mm. the maneuver itself um, helped me reflect on how I was evangelized as a kid and Maybe you ask, well, how much of what I adhere to now or back then was because of these same tactics? Yeah. Um, so now as a teacher, I, and I'm, it's part of my dissertation on education, actually, is how to avoid compelling my opinion onto my students as opposed to giving them the tools to heuristically explore what interests them, um, to develop their own curiosities. Um, and I think that was part of this experience. So that helped propel me away from the church. Yeah. And the, what I again say now, it's not just the church or Christianity. It's American evangelicalism that it occupies such a finite and small part of Christianity in, in Christian history. Right. And such a small part of, part of the world right now, even if it is an influential part of the world. Yeah. 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 I can't say enough about that. <laughs> it's, uh, and, and the people in it, you know, my family members who are still in it, just don't have that perspective at all. They see themselves as part of the same tradition that is, you know, that is two thousand years old. They see themselves not being um, influential in our part of the world, but as victims, persecuted. Um, you know, they're 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 the heroes of their own. <laughs> story, not the people who are, well, you said it earlier, um, <clears throat> they're doing what they do out of a, a, they're compelled by love and what they believe is, you know, good for everyone, but the damage is still, it still gets done either way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Oh. Evangelicalism. <laughs> well, it's, it's a hard, it's a complex problem. Uh, and I think when I have, if I have kids someday, uh, and as, as a teacher of, of kids teaching piano, it's so easy to see, I can't explain life in all its complexities as I've experienced it to a five or six year old or seven year old. You communicate in metaphors and stories that embody what you're trying to tell them. Yeah. And that's, it's effective. But when, it, when kids grow up, I think there's this natural impulse to wonder where does the metaphor end and the truth begin. 
So that may ultimately have been the root of this curiosity that drove me to mm. say this is where the metaphor ends for me. Mm. To me, the fascinating part now, uh, as a fifth-year PhD student uh, at a, a great school, um, I think I've come full circle to accepting a, a philosophy that says the metaphor never really does end. <laughs> uh, there's some. There's a whole line of cognitive research that called embodied cognition, explored by a scholar, founded by a scholar named George Lakoff, who discussed embodied uh, conceptual metaphors that bound our language. So when we speak a word, we we found every word on a metaphor, and we agree on what these metaphors mean, and that's how we they get power. Yeah. That's how we can construct an argument, but still on the the bottom level of language they're still conceptual metaphors. And so it's not as if we have metaphors and we have scientific truth. It's Even math teachers in college classrooms use embodied metaphors to teach how to do math. Like what would be like a, just a, like a super fundamental exam- example of uh, one of these metaphors? So in teaching um, calculus, for instance, uh, calculus teachers, they did did the survey at UCSD. They videoed calculus teachers, some senior professors, some like teaching assistants, to monitor their gestures when, when uh, teaching their class. And they found there was a, such a profound continuity with the gestures that were being used to demonstrate certain principles mm. that um, they, they were inseparable from, from the content of the class. Interesting. That Regardless part of, of properly understanding it. the math was to understand how it connected with your body and your your experience of being a physical body mm. in space and in time in this world. Yeah. Right? So, so time being linear, things being behind me that have already yeah, happened. Yeah, this Boolean logic. Things are inside of other things. Mm. And, yeah. Okay. And so uh, value, we have to respect the power of metaphors. Yeah. We have to know that all metaphors can be broken down and end at some point. But it's not as if we ever get outside of them. Hmm. And that's where I've come to reappreciate some of the power of the metaphors that I was raised with. And that's what I mean when I... I don't believe in them as if, as if they're true literally. Right. And so when I reject the Christian truth, um, I, I tried not to reject... I tried to reject the simple reading of the metaphors. Yeah. But... I'm not, I don't reject the metaphors fundamentally anymore. So like a metaphor of resurrection. Yeah. Like that would be one that you look at and, and like biologically, like I don't need to acknowledge that the physical, you know, the cells <laughs> of Jesus's body, like mm-hmm. regenerated or whatever, and that he walked again and true, um, true. But the concept, the metaphor of, of resurrection and what that means to me. Yeah. And what it can look like to be a saved person has little to do with uh, the afterlife. But um, I feel more saved now having gone through this turmoil of of healing after being willing to reject everything I thought I knew. It's, it's like my own little personal hero narrative that I feel like I was on, no matter how pathetic it may look uh, on the outside. Like yep. It feels that way yeah. for me, and I think you you find yourself feeling more saved now. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh, yes.
So when viewing Christ as an archetypal hero, it really matters not if he existed literally or historically or not. Um, to me, what Christ modeled was the, the willing acceptance of the suffering of life mm. and trying to death to eliminate suffering, especially for those who suffered most. And so if I can still act like that yeah. in a very real sense, I am believing in it. Because I, I think beliefs have a lot more to do with how we behave yes. than what we say. Oh my God, can we t- can we like say that again? <laughs> so, uh, mm, Christ to the point of death. Yeah, I need you to say that. <laughs> yeah, Christ as a mythological archetype, right? Um, which I say that like in the Jungian psycholo- psychological sense, an archetype is the thing that. Lots of cultures over thousands of years have agreed on the same things that make a person more ideal. And so, mm. as Christ has been passed down for 2,000 years or more, it passes on what thousands of cultures have over time agreed to be most ideal, some, some of the attributes. And I think what speaks to me most is that Christ is the one who accepts willingly the suffering of life. Mm. And to death works to to limit suffering, especially for those who are suffering most. Okay, that is good <laughs> shit right there. Yeah, I, I didn't come up with it. I mean, but yeah, it's it's beautiful. Um, I love hearing it phrased that way. That's really helpful. I want you to like talk me through these the five stages too of your of your grief um, of your unbelief, <laughs> um, but one of the things that it sounded like um, in that opening paragraph you read, maybe it wasn't even the opening opening paragraph, maybe it was the first first the next section, but um, you you talk about. Like it's not having it wasn't having to necessarily acknowledge what you don't believe anymore as being the hardest hardest part of what you went through. The hardest hardest part was sounded like was the loss of a relationship, really. Mm. It was you talked about the God that you spoke to, who you confided in, who even responded to you um, in whatever still small voice at whatever moments you were able to hear it, like that you had those experiences and to have to like acknowledge that or say goodbye God like that's a that's a loss of a relationship absolutely yeah um so I don't can can we can we talk through that like this this first stage was denial and some of the things that you did Mm -hmm. to uh to try you know to convince yourself otherwise um you know to convince yourself that that you weren't an unbeliever like you, you talked about uh, Labrie, Labrie, yeah, Labrie. <laughs> yeah. That was my giving Christianity its final stand in my mind. Mm. Uh, this was I was still teaching at the Christian University, uh, but this evangelist I had just talked about, who I traveled with for a, for a couple of years as yeah. a part of his band, um, he would always recommend this evangelist that inspired him, named Francis Schaeffer, mm-hmm. who is. Uh, almost as big as Billy Graham, but later on in the century, in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. 
and he touted himself more as the, the intellectuals evangelist. And most pastors who we would have been raised with would have been highly inspired, even indirectly, by Francis Schaeffer's yes. teaching. But Francis Schaeffer did an interesting thing. He started this institution called Labrie, I believe in Switzerland. And what it basically was was a, a library, a religious library, not even a Christian library. And it was a place for scholars of any religion or creed, or anybody, just to come, hang out with him, talk, mm. and come be rejuvenated, be changed if you want to be. He wouldn't try to evangelize you. Uh, his own technique, Francis Schaeffer, was to, he said, listen 90% of the time, and then speak 10% of the time. And it was the 90% of talking, and a therapist would tell you the same thing, that's the most transformative part yeah. of, of helping, seeing somebody come to terms with who they are, where they are, and what they are. Um, and what they need to do. So this institution called Labrie was planted in a few different areas uh, throughout the country, the, the world, and they're still, they still exist. Yeah. I went to one in Minnesota. Minnesota. I, I, yeah, it was kind of a random place. It was a beautiful little area. Yeah. Um, it was a, exactly as I said, it was a library. There was a tutor who himself was trained by Francis Schaeffer. Uh, you work half the day, you pay 25 bucks to spend the rest of the time just having free food and reading, thinking, discussing. It's, it's pretty idyllic, actually. A lot of fun. Wow, yeah. And no one's pressuring you to believe anything. Oh, my gosh. Um, so I just soaked up all the... I read everything I could in that one week, really trying to convince myself that it wasn't necessary to deny God. I could justify it another way. I mm-hmm. could reframe what I thought. I could, uh, this thing does not have to die. Yeah. I can save it. Yeah. Which was a funny reversal on the salvation story. Like, I was going on a hero's journey to try to save that which saved me. <laughs> um, which shows just how important it can, it, role it can play in our lives. Yeah. Um, yes. And I think we all have those things that we rely on to save us, and we do, should try to save them before they pass away. That's why we can't become complacent. But after that week at Libri, of uh, giving reading all the books I could, spending lots of time with this, this tutor, uh, I realized that this was a um, death was necessary. Mm-hmm. Death of my beliefs were necessary, mm. and I thought it would be permanent. I, I guess now I realize that it was one of those. Uh, shedding uh, like a crustacean sh- sheds its shell or something like mm. you will die in your shell or you can let it pass away but a new one develops and um, it, was, it was kind of sad I mentioned in the story too when I came back from Labrie I uh, talked to my girlfriend at the time and she had no idea I was having any of these struggles yeah. and I just said I know Christianity has been a foundation of our relationship but it's not that for me anymore and ultimately, that had a large part in ending the relationship. So there was that death to worry to combat. There was a spiritual death to to combat. Mm-hmm. Um, there was moving away from the Christian school, away from my family, to a new city. Um, those were that was all part of the darkest time in my life. Yeah. So why would someone willingly do that to themselves? Well, this is the irony of maybe acting. I was acting most Christ-like in my willingness to to put myself to death the things that are most important to me to death mm. for the sake of a larger truth. Um, 
and I stand here at the end of the, all the stages of grief, having felt healed and saved in a different way. Mm-hmm. Mm. I love the different ways people come to terms with their Jesus. Like, I just, I, I really like the way that you're, you've, you, you're able to look at this person now who was, you know, someone real and, and, you know, that you communicated with, like had, had a relationship with early on. Um, and now you're recognizing that the, the things that Mm -hmm. the, the path you took, like was the most Christ-like, like that, that's fantastic. Well, that's part of what I wrote in that, that intro was, Mm -hmm. it was so lonely to realize it was just me the whole time. But maybe it wasn't bad that it was me. Maybe I was, maybe it's a good idea to have a healthy self-dialogue where you, you separate yourself from your deepest issues and you, you discuss yourself through them dialectically and come to a deeper knowledge. Um, and it helps to personify that part of yourself giving another name. Mm -hmm. Um, even if it's just your ideal self, really, that's what I think it was. I mean, God is the, the metaphor of the highest ideal and we all should have an ideal self that we are aiming toward and it's always refining and articulating. And if we personify that, give it a name, always allow ourselves to be judged by our own ideal so yeah. we can get better and closer to it. Yeah. I don't see how that can be. A, it can be a bad thing. It can be abused. Everything can. But of course, yeah. um, it also doesn't have to be only religious foolishness. Yeah. Two things are coming to mind. First is... Um, do you read Brene Brown's work much or mm-hmm. yeah, her, her, I'm reading her latest book right now and it's about belonging and, um, the importance of belonging to yourself, like the difference between being lonely and being alone and the need to, um, yeah, to own, to, to belong to yourself, uh, to be able to sit in that, well, the other thing that's coming to mind is Ray. Like we're, you're talking Star Wars <laughs> earlier, uh-huh. Ray in the in this. Um, we could do a whole episode on Star Wars, right? <laughs> <laughs> but the, uh, well, uh, spoiler alert, I guess. Like I don't really give a shit. But <laughs> um, uh, when she, you know, finally comes face to face with the infinite reflection of herself, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because the big question is what you know, in, especially in the Star Wars universe, is like, what is your lineage? Who are your parents? Like, how how has the Force been passed on to you? And for her, it's like, nope, I'm nobody. Like, it's it really, it's just me here in this cave alone with myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved that. I know so many people did. I'm not a huge Star Wars like fan. I like I like the new stuff a lot because mm-hmm. it's like interesting and and visually appealing and all of that. But I I don't have the same like history with it so many people mm-hmm. did largely because of my evangelical upbringing which oh, like really? shunned a lot of things really? that, were, that came from you know oh, wow. popular culture um i don't know that we were ever i don't know that star wars was ever particularly like verboten but like we it just wasn't it wasn't in our house um well there's a reason that the new stuff is probably interesting to you and to a lot of people i think the story writers did a brilliant job with this other thing. I'm not going to go off on Star Wars right now, but... That's okay if you um, do. We'll follow the conversation wherever it yeah. goes, but yeah. Well, um, <clears throat> stories are interesting because we it's relatable. 
And the writers who want to sell a story to a lot of people find the most relatable common thread. Mm. And it that's hardly to be dis- distinguishable from how mythology develops at all. Um, mm. You meet people where they are, you put the ideas with some clothes that they can relate to, and a new mythology is born. And Star mm. Wars, if nothing else, is a modern-day mythology. Yeah. <laughs> people generally don't believe in literally, but um, they still adhere to the principles. And mythologically, it's a really rich... T- Star Wars itself is a rich combination of... Um, Christology and Taoism and um, um, what's the Excalibur one? Uh, um, King Arthur, like King Arthur, Arthur legends. Okay. Well, yeah, Arthur, yeah. Arthur, yeah. A lot, a lot of that is built in the Star Wars. Mm. Yeah. Okay. But for where our generation is right now, the same issues that you and I are talking about, um, who you are, lineage, the role of sacred texts in your life. Yeah. Um, what should be burned? What heroes should fall? I think they wrote a story for a generation who is dealing with these questions. Mm. And I think that's probably why it's so interesting oh. to even those who don't have such a rich history with Star Wars. Yeah. Oh, you're so right. So spot on. It was really interesting seeing it, seeing that movie and talking about it with some friends who are the, the diehard, like, mm-hmm. grew up with it. and, and, and Did, did they, they like it? Oh, no. <laughs> they, they, they trashed yeah. the hell out of it. They're mm-hmm. like, this is, you know, completely antithetical to everything. Star Wars stands for, and I'm just like, oh, it's pretty cool. But also, I don't care that much, so I'm not going to like argue with you about yeah. it. But, um, they sound like re- religious zealots rejecting a heresic, right? <laughs> yes. Something to that. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell that. I'm going to bring that back to my friend. And be like, you're just a religious zealot. Like, calm down. So denial into anger. Oh, this this was. You've already touched on the this job you had as a traveling musician with a with the the preacher. But I I, I thought that was a really interesting way to encounter your anger um, mm. by seeing kind of this this reflection. Um, I can't. I can. I can very much relate to what that is like because, uh, I mean, as I said earlier, I I moved to San Diego to start a church. Um, and I did that at the same time as like coming out broadly, I'd, I'd come out to a lot of people in, you know, in my inner circle, but like right when we were starting the church was kind of when I did, it was MySpace, <laughs> not Facebook, but you know, I wrote my open letter on MySpace wow. and, um, uh, but it, you know, I, it was, I was so careful with that. I, I couched it all in terms of, um, I don't even know if I ever said the word gay. Certainly didn't say the word queer because that's a much more recent mm-hmm. adoption. But um, I probably said same-sex attracted and I was very careful to acknowledge that that doesn't mean I'm living any kind of lifestyle that you would you, you would assume I would be living. You know, I'm, I'm single, celibate. Like, I was just very careful. Um, so I was trying to not have two lives anymore. I was trying to reconcile my both of my realities, the one that I had kept private for so long and then the one that I really wanted to continue in. I, I, did, I didn't want to give any give up any. I didn't want to lose my faith. I didn't want to lose my place in Christendom as I saw it, you know, as a worship leader, church planter, any of that stuff. 
So I was really striving to like bring those things and, and fold them into one. But those, those five years were, that was my last stand. You talked about your last stand being mm-hmm. Labrie. Is that how I say it? Yeah. yeah. I'm going to look into that some more, but, um, Mine was uh, a challenge from my papa, my grandfather, uh, to read the Bible cover to cover, you know, give it one last shot, basically, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I had never done, admittedly. Like, I had never read it as its own, like, book. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm pretty confident I had, I had encountered in some way, shape, or form every story that it had to offer mm-hmm. over the, you know... Four well, times. A lot of weird things in there that don't get preached on. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's true, but I still know about those. They, those are the most interesting. Um, the, I, you said earlier, you know, joking about the, the format of the Bible is not necessarily the most compelling, but like I, when, when, the, when church was boring, I would go to Esther or I'd go to Judges. Like I loved some of those stories. Like, mm-hmm. like there, were, there, are, there are like awesome narratives um, in the Bible. Um, so there are things in there I had, you know, read over and over. But I did. I, it was, my last stand was was reading through the Bible cover to cover, and that was my labri. Like I was, I came out of it. Came out of that experience saying, "This is. I think this is you. So human. It's it's a undeniably human story, and that's all I could see mm-hmm. when I read it uh, for the last time. Was how." much it is the st- it's our story the, our the way we interpret our encounter with what we call god mm-hmm. um and and nothing about it feeling um divinely inspired and inerrant and and um infallible the you know the the words that had been that we were so careful <laughs> to make sure Mm-hmm. When, we, when we talk about the Bible being those things. Yeah, even if it's ancient compared to being eternal, mm. that's like saying it's nothing anymore. Mm. Yeah. At, at, at the moment when we realize that it, um, it was human. Yeah. So sorry, I, I got sidetracked off of anger. <laughs> I don't know how I got here, but... Um, oh, because we're talking about what it is to make your living... Yeah, but did you feel angry at all when you felt that? It was when you admitted to yourself that it was a profoundly human text. Yeah, I did encounter some anger. Um, I, I, and it was anger towards my upbringing, mostly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were some really tense, tough years there. Um, and tense moments still, you know, come up with my family, but um, but not because it's driven by my rage anymore. But, you know, there were, there was a period of time when it was really hard to uh, to contain those feelings when when I would look at my upbringing and look at the way my parents raised me and what they still believe and um, yeah, I did I had a lot of anger there actually. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it's hard not to. Yeah, uh, I think is it Dante's Dante's Inferno. Uh, Dante relegates the lowest pit of hell, not to the murderers or rapists, mm. but it's to those who betray, mm. those who maybe take the most um, sacred part of of how we relate to another, another trust, and they turn it around and take advantage of it and betray an innocent trust. 
Um, and I think that's how we felt when finally acknowledged that what we were told wasn't the case. Yeah. Because it wasn't just that, oh, an idea is false. It's that those who told us that it was true to the extent that it should have been the basis of my life, um, uh, it's not the way... It, the reality is suddenly different. Yeah. <laughs> and we can't help but want to blame or feel victimized. Mm-hmm. And in a way, we, we have been. Um, but it's a, it's a hard thing to to work through. But it ha- yeah, I think you're right. It has to be worked through. It does. We can't ignore... The, I try to ignore my anger for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's not going to go well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's going to come up again somehow or another. It's going to man- yeah. manifest itself. Well, I loved what you said. Um, I think I wrote this one down. Yeah. When you finally, and maybe this is out of the um, Reddit, uh, your, your, your Reddit uh, writing, or, or just that, that experience, but um, rejecting the comfort of resentment. I loved the, that, the way you couched that. <laughs> Um, because it is, it does feel very comfortable, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, to sit on that, you know, throne of hurt and, uh, and feel right. It feels good to know that you're right. Um, even not, not, not even being right about what you do or do not believe, but just being right in the principle of like betray of of, of being able to recognize the betrayal. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, and there's a comfort there. Absolutely. And that's a... It's a, an important thing we have to admit to ourselves, is that anger is real. Mm-hmm. Resentment is real. Mm-hmm. But if we stay there, it'll destroy us. Yes. Um, and through that, we will probably want to destroy other things. Because yeah. one of the things resentment wants to do is to take other things down too, because... Yeah. Hurt people, hurt people. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> that's what they say. And that's, again, what the Christ archetype, and not just Christ, many heroes throughout the ages have this idea of um, if you return evil with evil, then things infinitely get worse. Mm. The buck has to stop somewhere where you say, I was hurt, but I won't do the same. Yeah. And that's one of the most pr- profound messages I think that can be held on to no matter who you are, where you are, what culture raised you. Absolutely. Um, one of the best things I got out of this Libri experience, one, I found a, a audio tape and it struck me because it was by a, a sermon by a piano tuner. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and I, I tune pianos too. And I have since college and I thought, what, what the hell would a piano tuner have to say to me? But I had, could not listen to it. <laughs> Um, but it turned out he was the piano tuner for Horowitz, who was a famous classical pianist. Okay. And uh, he, and the tuner had a crazy testimony. He was um, he he was in Poland in World War II as a child, and Germans came, destroyed his home, killed his family. He survived. He grew up as a teenager, resenting, hating. Not only Nazis, but um, uh, Germans, and felt like his world had been destroyed, and he wanted to destroy everything else. Long story short, uh, he met a preacher man who he was trying to tear down, and he was convinced, finally, that um, he had to return hate with love, and that's what Christ stood for. And at that moment, his life changed. Um, he forgave the Nazis for what they did, mm. and he uh, 
became a, a humble piano tuner, eventually rising the ranks to be the prominent, the most prominent piano tuner in Europe, um, touring with Horowitz uh, till the end of Horowitz's, Horowitz's life. Um, and I think, but that principle of returning hate with love. And I haven't encountered anything like he did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think that's, that is the thing to hold on to. Absolutely. I love how um, it's just beautiful that, you know, when you're, especially when you're creating something like this, I, there's so many people having these conversations and doing it better than I am or differently than I am. And, um, but you're, it, it's like you, James, encounter this uh, truth. Like you learn this truth through this one very specific person, <laughs> the piano tuner, yep, yep. The, the famous European. You mean no one else has mentioned him? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like that's what's so cool about how life works. Uh, one of the things that's so super cool that I just love is when somebody's, I'm, I'm just going to learn my lessons through, through my way, right? Like, mm-hmm. and, and somebody that we're speaking to today on this podcast is going to get something out of it that they wouldn't get, even though, are probably people saying it way better than I'm going to ever articulate something. Like, they're going to listen to this and, and learn something that... I just love that. It's beautiful. That was neither here nor there. <laughs> um, yay for European piano tours. <laughs> <laughs> you can edit that part out. <laughs> so, into This was interesting. Yeah, you talk about uh, your girlfriend who uh, was she had she had lost her faith, right? Um, As a result of my admission, yeah. Oh, okay. I may I may have read it wrong. I thought there was somebody that you had had, like brought back to faith. You're right. As you were leaving it, Mm -hmm. that did that happen? Yes, that did happen. Uh, That was part of the bargaining stage for sure. (laughs) Uh, This is before I had admitted. that I didn't believe in God anymore. Mm. This is before okay. Labrie. Gotcha. Um, by by two years. But I was, uh, I think I just started teaching for the Christian University at the time. Um, this this uh, girlfriend was, we bonded over her lo- losing of faith. Mm. And I was going to, I felt I was going to be the one to bring her back. Yeah. And I thought, okay, this is it. If I can bring her back, and she, she was an intensely intelligent person, she got a full ride scholarship at age fourteen. Yeah. Um, she was, she herself was the child of pastors and missionaries, and was raised in Russia. Like was a no nonsense type of person. So I thought if I could bring her back, then it has to be true mm. because she wouldn't be convinced otherwise. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Forget me what I'm convinced of, and that. I love how that logic works. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> kind of makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but maybe that's the downside of of separating, compartmentalizing yourself so much. Like maybe it's good to have the self dialogue. Yeah. But when you break yourself up into, well, I convince myself when I convince this abstract. Yes. And I, I can't say I was successful, but she did come around and believe after we after lots of conversations, lots of reading, lots of prayer. Uh, she came around. She was rebaptized. By her father, yeah, and I remember that moment where uh, I saw her be baptized, and I thought I was gonna have 
same rebaptism myself, witnessing this, like feeling we're coming full circle together. And I felt the opposite. <laughs> I felt plunged into a pit of, of, of hell, knowing that I had dece- deceived not only her, but myself. Yeah. And uh, that was another one of the experiences to propel me to figure out what, what could I possibly do now yeah. um, to find a thread of truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was, so I was bargaining through that relationship, yeah. in a sense, and that relationship fell apart, if we go figure, <laughs> um, before too long after yeah. that. Man, that's, I mean, we all do that on, in so many different ways. Yeah, that, we, we follow that logic of, I don't need to believe it if I can get mm-hmm. you know, someone else to believe it, or I don't need to embody something if, if I'm the channel for, you know, someone else getting there then it just means it's true by default, like whether or not my experience like rings, like resonates with it. So that's just, it's one way to shut off, you know, shut ourselves off um, and not, not sit with ourselves or belong to ourselves or see our own reflection. You're, you're right. I bet you experienced this too over those years of wondering um, where do we exist in this belief space? And essentially we're lying to ourselves about uh, our own experience. Um, I was lying to this girlfriend about who I was because I was lying to myself about who I was. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the most unhealthy places you could be. Yes. Is where you are telling yourself, convincing yourself that you're not who you actually are. And I've, it could be that whatever salvation I feel like I've encountered now is the result of finally telling myself the truth about myself to the extent that I can. I want to get to acceptance, which is, you know, your final stage here, and this I thought was so beautiful. So I, I'm going to read this back to you, actually, if that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then we can talk about it. But you, you, you're talking about, uh, probably partly through your experience on Reddit, but just encountering the world of other people who are on similar journeys. Um, uh, and you say, this is where you found the courage to stop obsessing over the paleness of my own reflection in the stream. This is what initiated the final stage of grief, acceptance. I accepted my unbelief and confessed aloud to my closest pastor friends, and they did not reject me. I accepted that I would never again experience the hope of an eternal heavenly afterlife. I accepted that the penalty of life is not only death, but absurdity and chaos that hosts our every waking day and composes our history. I accepted that I could find the strength even if I didn't have it just yet, to face this life, even if just out of curiosity of the drama of how it will unfold. I accepted that life is a gift so long as I act as such. I accepted the marvelous and awful world as a true reflection of myself. I accepted that my being was mine and mine alone to determine. Ultimately, I accepted the challenge to go on stumbling through this life until my end. 
Ooh. <laughs> oh man. It's so good. And you've you've already like touched on so much of this and like kinda summed up uh how that is the Jesus archetype right there. Like hmm. Oh, I love that so much. That's going to be my big takeaway. I can already tell from this conversation. I, uh, Maybe you should just put that in there and then call that the podcast. <laughs> of the opening paragraph and you reading that and then... Yeah, uh, and then we're done. That's, yeah. that's it. No, no, because it's, it's, it's the journey of how we get here. Um, but, yeah. Uh, but I, I tell you the truth, it, it was a journey. Yeah. And I think it couldn't have helped but be a journey mm-hmm. to arrive from the opening this, the despair yeah. to that. Yeah. Yes. I, and I love this cause it's not like I would have been taught. My upbringing would have told me this is actually, uh, like there's not like, this is despair. Like, like mm-hmm. people would have called this like despairing, like what a, what a, you know, worthless like life to live. Mm-hmm. If you don't, if you don't have that bigger, um, eternal, heavenly um, outcome I, I mean I'm just so with you on this like this is where I find my hope and my coming alive and my life makes sense yeah <laughs> what, what, this when I look at it this way to see the reflection of myself in this mis- marvelous and awful world like I'm not even interested in answering the, the question anymore of the problem of evil yeah. Like it's, I don't think that's, it doesn't, that doesn't captivate me the way it used to. Mm-hmm. It's just like, yeah. And in me too. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's like Carl Jung said, it, the line of evil is not between the evil people and the good people. It's through the very center of you. Yeah. And that's the Taoist idea of the yin and yang. Like yes. we are all in that place. Yes. Um, where we can even be compelled to, to um, empathize with the dark side and yeah. characters on the dark side. Yeah. Um, we are part of us. Are, yeah. We're navigating that balance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it felt so freeing, honestly, to write those words mm. and even just to be reminded um, of those right now. Mm. Just to realize how far uh, I've come and I can't take credit for it. Um, the only thing I can take credit for, I guess, at all, same thing you. You just took one day at a time, and you kept seeking. Yeah. You just kept seeking what there was there yeah. um, that life could could offer you to hold on to. Mm-hmm. Um, you can even call it revel- revelation, <laughs> what, what life has to reveal. Mm. And I still believe that life has a lot more to reveal so much more right <laughs> yeah. yes yeah and so we'll keep taking one day at a time um i mean if we can just maybe like wrap up and unless there's anything that you still want to say and feel free to interrupt me if there's something we haven't touched on okay i'll think about it but um you ended with this beautiful list of uh your creed it's your your you wrote your creed <laughs> and it's awesome I won't read the whole thing here. Um, although I, I, is this publicly available anywhere? Uh, on Reddit somewhere. <laughs> it, is on, it is on Reddit. But man, yeah. like maybe we it, we'll, we'll talk about it. Yeah, uh, I'd yeah love feel free to publish to, this document. Oh, that'd yeah. be great. For, I, I might edit it down a bit. Yeah, actually, sweet, sweet, sweet. All right. Well, maybe we'll we'll get this out there so that people can reference it. Um, 
but there were three that really, uh, three of these uh, creed statements uh, in this list that really stuck out to me. Um, and as I'm reading them now, we've we've talked about them, so I don't know how much more we want to say. But uh, the first was, I believe that suffering is fed by resentment, but starved by gratitude, hmm. which is just one of those <laughs> truths that... <laughs> Uh, yeah, you can only come to when you when you experience it, right? Like, of course, of course it's true, but like, I'm still going to do that. I'm still going to sit on my throne of resentment until I am able to recognize how sick I am. And how hard is it in coming to terms with your faith, the, what it used to be? Mm-hmm. Is it to, to come to a place where you can be grateful for yeah. parts of it, at least? Yeah. Yes. Do you feel like you've gotten there? I, I feel like I am getting there. Um yeah, even when I started this particular project, this doing, like, yeah, making Heathen was um, was driven by a lot of things. One of the things was to be able to answer the question of what I do believe, because I just felt like I was so comfortable in, by, in defining myself by what I don't believe. Um, mm-hmm. Like, that was where I just sat. And, yeah. and I could say, well, I don't believe this. I'm, look at this. I'm definitely not down with that. And, and But, you know, people would ask me but okay fine but what about Mm. what is the what is the proactive part of your agnosticism like as you Mm. said earlier like I was like oh yeah maybe I should do that work (laughs) um but yes uh if if anything it's the having these conversations has totally accelerated that process for me and just given me grace I didn't even like I didn't think I would ever have, but didn't even really want to have for people mm-hmm. in my in my past who mm-hmm. I felt hurt by or felt tricked by, betrayed by, all those things that we, we talked about earlier. Um, so yeah, I feel like I am like at, very actively in the process of like acknowledging how my resentment has just been holding me back, mm-hmm. harming me. Mm-hmm. And gratitude is is the opposite of it. Like, that's the response, yeah. And we don't have to become grateful for every aspect, nope, for nope. certain. Yeah, it's totally okay to call out the bullshit for what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and necessary. Um, and helpful for whatever next generation we're trying to influence. <laughs> and that's where I think the good you're doing shines through. Mm. You, you are calling out the truth as you see it. You're trying to build the, the path as you go. Mm. And you're articulating it for for your listeners who yeah. can be helped in their own process, and that is making a better world. These are the kind of actions we take to make a better world. Yay! <laughs> Yay! I I love that we're a part of that. Um, I believe balance is the optimal state. What, like when you wrote that, what was mm. going on for you with that one? It's a really general and broad, and it comes back to this uh, yeah. this T-shirt, this Taoist, the the yin yang idea. Awesome. Um, just that uh, often what feels good to us just at a physical level what feels good is when our body finds a balance somewhere mm-hmm. and we've, we don't, aren't even often aware what we're in the balance of but um, we just find ourselves having been healed from a particular extreme Maybe we overcompensate with the other extreme of resentment or anger. You can be overly gra- grateful, too, if you 
don't call out the bullshit for being what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but it can take a whole life to realize how many different ways you can be balanced. Mm. And it's part of the high resolution picture of life that you can, that continues to reveal itself the more honest with yourself you are. Yeah. So the higher, the more complex and nuanced your view of life, the more ways of balancing yourself you can find. <laughs> right? Yes. I, I'm just thinking about this experience I had this past week. <laughs> um, so I'm a, are you familiar with the Enneagram at all? Yep. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an eight challenger aggressor, depending on. Did Damien get you into this by any chance? No. Oh, you did it at the church. At yeah. The journey? We did it at Sojo. Yeah. Sojourn. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. Um, oh, Damien's into it too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I want to say when I talked to him, I don't think he had encountered it yet. So good. That's for having that conversation. But anyway, uh, yeah. So especially now that I, in my later in life liberation from whatever, like uh, burden I felt to make sure other people were comfortable. I'm just like, <laughs> nah, <laughs> um, happy to call things as I see them typically. Um, often to my own detriment and to the detriment of the relationship that the potential for a relationship. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, cause people are like, Oh, I don't want anything to do with that guy. <laughs> He's an <laughs> asshole. <laughs> um, so I, there was a, a Facebook comment that I made on a friend's p- a picture and I said, I don't even remember what I was saying. So like, Oh, it was a photo. It was just a funny photo. And I was like, that photo is goddamn gorgeous. And Somebody else who I don't know, of course, uh, later, like days later, I think commented like, I was so enjoying reading this thread until I saw someone take the Lord's name in vain. And, you know, out of the, the heart, the mouth speaks and, you know, just like this very, you know, thing that I heard. She didn't have my last name, did she? (laughs) No, no. Um, (laughs) Oh, interesting. Sounds like someone you know. Could have been. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I know. We all know this person, right? (laughs) And I don't. I didn't even have like a hint of bile, like rise up in my reaction, my response, which was just not normal. (laughs) Um, I just wrote her back, and I was like, "Hey, I'm so sorry. Like, I did not mean to offend you at all. I was, you know, just making a joke, and you know, I, I." I, I think you're wrong. Like, I think I said that. I, I don't, I didn't say like, I think you're wrong. I think mm-hmm. it's, we just have a difference opinion, a difference of opinion on uh, whether the use of a certain word or language, you know, ref- accurately re- reflects the quality of someone's character. But I'm mm-hmm. sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. Mm-hmm. And a friend, a very close friend of mine, uh, Kate, actually, who's uh, the one of the pastors at Sojo, um, <laughs> talked to me later and she was like, I can't believe you like let her off the hook so easily. Like I was expecting you to like come back full force and uh, you know do what you do, which is whatever. You know, I I, I there's part of me that lives for those moments, mm-hmm. and I was just like, yeah, like for whatever reason in this instance, I don't know if I I, I know I actually I did I feel like I saw my mom or I saw a family member in that comment, and I was just like. I don't need to rage against this woman. Like that is so not important. Like mm-hmm. I'm just going to let her know that I'm sorry. Like I didn't mean to yeah. trigger you in this way. Um, so so, so all... that would seem like a balanced response yeah. to me. Yeah. <laughs> and when difficult things 
affront those who are balanced in that particular domain, they are not effective. Mm. You stay balanced. Yeah. And that's the idea of balance. That's, that's the embodied metaphor of, of balance. You can stand on something with one foot, force is pulling you to either side, and you can just stay firm. Right? Yeah. I just love that I have the option. Like, and that's, I, to me, I guess that's what represents balance. It's like, I can make a very, like, you know, <laughs> aggressive stance if I want to, if I feel it's called for, if, I, if, if, if that's the place I want to put myself in. Or I don't have to. Mm-hmm. And that's so nice because I think for so long I was on, I was on the side of like, well, I can't, you know, I got to make sure everyone around me is comfortable. And then there was a period of life where I'm like, no, I'm going to challenge everyone and everything all the time <laughs> without exception. And now it's like, I have the option. Hmm. And that feels good. feels so good, mm-hmm. especially in, in retrospect, feeling how knowing how it could have affected you, yep. how it used to affect you. Yep. Uh, I think that's, uh, Christology would call it sanctification. Um, mm. uh, Buddhism would call it enlightenment. Mm. Um, call sanctified. It lots of things. <laughs> yeah. Getting sanctified. I love it. Uh, but another, just a thought on balance that I just had, uh, I think it has a lot to do with um, being fully integrated as an individual. Yeah. When you have dealt with the compartments that would would have pulled you to one side or to the other, and you put them in dialogue with one another, and you have a sense of who you are, the indivisible part of you are, are and how you negotiate those mm. forces. That's when you find that balance. Part of it is, is purely neurological. We have so many subsections that evolved over epochs of our biological evolution um, that are pulling us in different directions. There's an aggressive part of you that wanted to respond and say, this is how you need to re- react to this. There may have been a disgust response that you had. This, like, this lady's opinion is an infection, and it's yeah, going yeah. it, to... Um, needs to die. Yeah. We need to kill it with fire. <laughs> but other yep. part of you saw her not just as an infection, but as an individual yeah. um, who, no matter how much you may disagree with her, is worthy of dignity. Some would say... Uh, divine respect mm. and that's an interesting part of how mm. how western culture itself evolved to not just western culture but cultures that work regard the individual as something sacred no matter what they've done and that's why we can treat murderers who have been proven to be murderers yeah. with everything the law has to to protect their rights as a sacred individual wow. um, so i think all that to say balance is when we arrive at this fully integrated and we're never truly there right but it's when we can maintain that position of being fully integrated yeah that's beautiful all right last one and this was my favorite i love it i believe in the ineffable (laughs) i love this and i don't know where you're going with it uh so maybe unpack it a little but i I mean i'll try to unpack it only a little (laughs) just a little (laughs) yeah uh by nature of what the ineffable is um okay so what carl jung says uh is that in becoming aware of our environment, it doesn't, our awareness does not go from unawareness to articulated knowledge of it. There's this space in between called the dream state. Um, and it's dreamlike, and it, it involves actual dreams mm. that help us reconcile all the data we've, we've encountered throughout every single day of our life um, to help us compile it into something manageable that we can, it can inform our actions to go forward. Um, 
it also involves the dream. The dream state involves not just dreams, but just that kind of vague place that exists in your mind as you're forming your thoughts, as you're forming your ideas. Mm. And I think to the extent that we can never truly know our environment fully and we can never know ourselves fully, that's the space where the ineffable exists. It's, it's where we are aware, but not in a propositional, articulated fashion. And I think... Like, in a way, all that we can say now that someone a thousand years ago could not have said um, accounts for the ineffable for them. And there are things that humans a thousand years from now will be able to say uh, because they will have a a more cooperative cooperative grasp on their environment that we can't say now. And that's, to us, the ineffable right now. Mm. Um, But it doesn't doesn't mean that we don't understand it in some kind of dreamlike way. We're all slowly waking up, and that's a very Buddhist way of of envisioning it. and, and as somebody who's writing a dissertation, uh, the theory behind writing a dissertation is that you are articulating something that has never been articulated before in this way, mm-hmm. at least, yeah. or in this domain. And that's a hard thing to do. <laughs> and I'm not saying I've been, I've been successful at it, but there's this whole meme that in, in grad school that if you, so when someone asks you what you're writing about, you just kind of look dumbfounded like, uh, blah, 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 um, well, uh, <laughs> and that's, that's exactly right, because you are trying to um, articulate things that are in, in formation. Yeah. And that's coming to terms with the ineffable, um, as of now, the ineffable. Mm-hmm. So I think having a healthy respect and awareness of the things that aren't yet articulated can help you be thankful for, one, the things that we can articulate, and also be thankful for the metaphors that helped raise us. Mm. Incomplete, easy to abuse, yeah. uh, can build can build structures of fear as much as they can give you a groundwork for forming your life. But still, there our parents' attempt at understanding the ineffable of life, and I can be grateful for that. Yeah, yeah. So there's that. <laughs> That's great. Okay, heathens, don't go yet. There's still about 10 more minutes of conversation coming up, but I wanted to explain what happens uh, right here in this next little section. Um, We got interrupted. A couple things happened. The dog uh, started barking. Uh, A Girl Scout showed up at the door selling her wares. She uh, left because I didn't have cash, and she went to get her credit card processor. It was a whole thing. I needed, you know, we needed to buy Girl Scout cookies. So that happened, um, and it just kind of changed the whole, like, dynamic and and nature of the conversation. We got a little more casual, and we're munching on some Thin Mints, and it's really wonderful. But but, uh, I wanted to include these last 10 minutes because I thought that uh, there was still some really good stuff remaining. So that's what's going on. We kind of talk about our Enneagram numbers. We talk about music theory and we just, we wrap it up and it's awesome. So stick around for the final part. So is it appropriate to ask the question then, uh, do you have a better sense of what you believe after oh, this venture? That's a totally appropriate question. Um, oh, we are recording. <laughs> awesome, we got the whole Girl Scout interaction. Um, I 
Yeah, you know, I was kind of just dancing around with, um, <laughs> just like connection, like human connection, uh, and I didn't, I, I didn't have any really good. I just, I, I, I don't know how to articulate anything about it other, other than just like, like it's this that matters to me more than hmm. that. Um, <laughs> and for the benefit of our podcast listeners who don't see my hand gestures right now, <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> the connection between what's happening right now between you and me versus um, the relationship that I, you know, thought I was supposed to have with a deity. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if I, I don't know what, what, uh, what did you, you said proactive agnostic. I like that. Um, I, I mean, I definitely feel universalist, I guess. If I had to get pinned down to, which is the opposite, I guess, of being pinned down, (laughs) saying saying I'm universalist. Um, Like there's, I I don't, I don't, I don't believe Jesus is special, like any more special than us (laughs) Mm. or any other, you know, way. Um, But I think I am like coming around to, um, some of what you've been talking about, like, like if Jesus, Jesus is the archetype and like, there's, there's truth in, like, I can believe in the story of Jesus in, in the way you described, which I'm seriously like going to go back to and like write that down. Cause that was my favorite thing. Um, so for me, it's just like, it's, it's the language I speak and it's the culture. I like, I'm, I guess I'm culturally, Christian affiliated, mm-hmm. but I, but that's changing rapidly. So, yeah, you're, you're, you're in a way helping construct a new type of Christian culture for the 21st century. Mm. Mm. It's so interesting because I feel like such a lurker, um, especially online. Like I don't do the Reddit communities, but I do. Um, oh, we're back. <laughs> we're gonna go buy some Girl Scout cookies. <laughs> you ever put them in the freezer? Yes. Thank you. Yes. So focus more on the horizontal than the vertical. Yeah. But that said, I don't, I mean, I just don't, I I still can't articulate a belief in any particular, Mm -hmm. I just, I I just feel woefully inadequate when I talk about connection and love. I don't feel like that, like, describes anything, but but it is the best I have right now. Like, love, I feel like there is something, like there's a spiritual dimension. There is a, I don't believe in a being, I guess. Like a, like a conscious, apart from us being. Mm-hmm. But. That seems like such an eight attitude to have. You said you're an eight? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is wonderful, right? <laughs> I love being an eight. Yeah. A lot of it, I, I, you know, was not proud of when I was, re- you know, first reading about it. I was like, oh, this sounds like a. Are you an eight, nine? I actually don't know what my wing, wing. Okay. I haven't been able to identify because there's days when the seven feels very, <laughs> yeah. And then other times, like, like when thin months come around. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but the nine also, like I, I, I love, I think I probably just love nines. I love like, Haley's a nine. I think Damien's a nine actually. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I love them because I, I need them. And I also feel like, I feel like it's a very symbiotic relationship because I feel like I can do things for them that they sometimes can't do for themselves mm-hmm. or, or struggle to do that it's very easy for me to like 
stand up for them in ways that, you know, mm-hmm. um, and then they temper me in a really great way. So I'm probably not an eight, nine. I'm probably eight. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to be eight, nine. What about you? What's your, I'm a, a definite five. Mm. And that makes so much sense. Yeah. Right. And so I really benefit from having more social people. Mm. And I think back to belief. And I do think there's a big overlap between personality metrics and how we orient our beliefs in the world. Mm. And maybe that's a conversation for another time. Ooh, um, that sounds like a really exciting one. <laughs> yeah. So it's not just some like weird hoopla about personality types, but there's something to that. Mm. Um, and it comes down to what kind of opportunities do we see in the world? Our personality biases toward what opportunities we see and where the substance of existence is. So mm-hmm. for a five, it's more like knowledge or understanding. Yeah. For an eight, like you just enacted, it was, it's people and <laughs> connections and options, openness. Yeah. And I think your beliefs, as you described, are more, they're acted out more than they are articulated. And I think you, in this podcast, you are acting out your beliefs. In that interaction, I just saw you're acting out your beliefs. Really? And oh. even in the attempt to start this church, and even if it didn't go well, that was an, your belief system playing itself out. Hmm. Um, and I think it's wonderful and hmm. that you, you can say that you are still growing and you can't articulate it satisfactorily, but I think you are articulating it through action, and that's the most important way. Wow. Like, you're making me emotional right now. That's like, thank you. That's really helpful. That is really helpful for me to hear. Because um, I think I, f- I feel like a lot of pressure or just inadequacy in terms of being able, like, like why can't I just, <laughs> you know, pin something down that's uh, satisfactory or helpful or whatever. But, but maybe that's, maybe I don't need to right now. I think you have found a truth. Hmm that has organized your life and that's what truth I mean you can define truth as the the formal characteristics that organize our life um, so I'm a music theorist so that's how I think of music and most musicians hate music theory because it's the thing that binds them down yeah. right um, but there's a role for it yes and so many music theorists don't even know how much they are acting out classical principles of music theory. Mm-hmm. And I think most a lot of people who can't t- describe their beliefs are still acting out those the truths, right? Woo! Yes! <laughs> Absolutely! I, the, the one time in my life I've ever appreciated any kind of mathematics was music theory in college. Hmm. And I, I mean, I, I only remember the most fundamental <laughs> parts of music theory because I, I'm definitely the musician who's like, it sounds right. Like, you know, <laughs> I, 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 this is where I want to go. Like, this is where my soul is taking me. Mm-hmm. Um, but you still need it. You still need the, the, that foundational, like, mm-hmm. understanding to do it with any kind of professional anything. Yeah. Well, you don't always need it to... You don't need to be able to articulate it. That's right. my point. Yeah. Uh, a lot of great musicians, and I'm using this in my research, are autodidactic. I was autodidactic. I taught myself... Uh-huh. Most of what I knew. I went to college, taught myself how to read music, about chords. Uh, I was still like doing the every good boy does fine thing. Um, <laughs> but they put me in an advanced theory class. Really? Because nice. I understood intuitively how chords worked. Oh. And so 
I, th- I think you don't have to, and this huh. goes back to belief, you don't have to be able to state your creed um, as much as you have to know yourself, find your balance, and act accordingly. And I think what you're doing is exactly that. You found some beliefs. You're being grounded on it every single day, every wow. single time you do this. Yeah. All your acts of passion with the music and the editing. and. Oh, man. Thank you. No, thank you. That's and sick. also, you've given me the opportunity and those who you interview an opportunity to uh, get to know themselves better mm. by having to tell their story again. Mm. And that that's a great service. Mm. So, wow. thank you. It's You're welcome. <laughs> uh, but it is a huge... It's a huge deal for anybody to do this with me. I it, thank you for. I mean, it, it's ex, it's that excavation that is difficult, you know. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate you know the time, the energy, the emotional heft it takes to like have these conversations, and likewise, I mean it's uh, it's helpful for me. I know it's helpful for. It's not a huge audience listening to this thing, but but there are people who listen to this thing like with some serious regularity and hmm. like talk to me every single time about oh like the insight I got from this person or what that person said like it's it's meaningful and helpful to folks so yeah thanks for listening to Heathen I'll be back next week with a new guest in the meantime. Take a minute to go follow Heathen on Facebook, Twitter, and or Instagram. The handle is at Heathen Podcast. And you can also visit the website at heathenpodcast.com to learn more about this project. Send your comments or questions, and maybe we'll talk about them on an upcoming episode. Lastly, if you like what you hear, I would love and appreciate your five-star review on iTunes. It makes a huge difference for a new podcast. I'm Matthew Blake, here's to the heathens.